Well, we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, as we continue to dive into the Gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And this morning, I've titled our message from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Everything Changes with Jesus. Everything Changes with Jesus. Would you hear now the word of God from Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. One of the more, at least on the face of it, I would argue, confusing passages of Scripture we get to dive into and explore today. Is it okay for the pastor to say he finds the text confusing? I've labored in this text uh, all week uh, between sneezing and coughing and uh, elderberry syrup and every other kind of elixir you can imagine, and the sermon is kind of still writing itself. Even this morning I woke up and thought, ah, I should have done that, and so I'd already printed it, so here we go. Um, before we dive in, I just want to say that, that the Pharisees of John and the, or excuse me, the disciples of John and the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question about fasting, which is connected with sort of a mournful disposition, right? Because there's something that they lack. They lack the deliverance that God is going to bring, and they're thinking of it primarily in terms of a king who's going to come. They're thinking of it primarily in terms of a political deliverance that's related only to Israel, not this worldwide king who's worthy of worship of all the nations. And let me say to you first, because I don't know if I've done a good enough job in the heart of this sermon of saying this, that the main point of this text is Jesus has come and that should bring joy to your life. You should, you should be celebrative that Jesus has come. And so the general disposition of the Christian should be one of celebration and not crankiness. It should be a focus on what we do have, not on what we don't have. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's a challenge to me pastorally because I'm wired critically. And I don't mean to be critical, but to be a critical thinker. The, the things that I see first are the things that could be improved rather than all the great things that we already have. And, and we need to work on that, at least I do, this moment of true confession, but... But as a church and as a people and as, a, as, as believers, our lives should be characterized by celebration because Jesus has come. So, now for the sermon. As we continue to hear from God through Mark's gospel, Mark is showing us in these series of stories, this is, this is the third in a series of five stories about the authority of Jesus He's showing us a steady intensification of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. 
Jesus has already claimed that like God alone, he can forgive sins. And then last week, got, we got the really good news. He, didn't just, he doesn't just have the authority to forgive sins. The whole reason he came was to forgive sinners. And not just sinners, but sinners. You know, like tax collectors. Really bad people. And if that is true, if people who've totally ignored the law for their entire lives can be saved, then what does that mean for people who've been trying to keep the law? What does it mean for religious people, people like John's disciples who are looking for the Messiah, or people like the disciples of the Pharisees who are trying to please God through their own self-righteousness? What it means is that Jesus changes everything. So I want you to see three things this morning, because Jesus has come not only with the authority to forgive sin, but as we saw last week, to call sinners. There's three things that we should do. First, we should celebrate our union with Christ, which implies that, that we've trusted in Him. Secondly, we must hunger for His return. And thirdly, we must be clothed with Christ's righteousness and filled with His presence. First, we must celebrate our union with Christ. Verse 18 begins with a question for Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? John's disciples are either misguided by the Pharisees or fasting in anticipation of Messiah's coming, while the Pharisees wanted to earn God's rescue from Rome through national purity and obedience. They thought if we just fast enough, if we just crave God enough, if we just show God how important we are and how much we want His deliverance, then maybe we could be delivered. And here's what the Pharisees are really asking Jesus. Jesus... If you are so spiritual, why are we more religious than your disciples? Which fascinates me, because they're standing before God in the flesh, questioning His spiritual credentials. The Pharisees are asking, why aren't your disciples doing everything they can to earn the favor of God? And the answer, of course, is because Jesus is the favor of God. He is God who has come for us, and there's nothing that we could ever do to deserve Him to come for us, he turns mourning into dancing. Fasting had turned in Jesus' day from a way of expressing a desire for God's deliverance into a way of proving someone's religious credentials. You want to know how spiritual I am? See me fast. The Pharisees did it every Tuesday and Thursday. Jesus warns about this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, when he says, Whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. My father has a mug with a picture of Garfield on it that reads, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. That's the Pharisees. Really great at showing you their humility. Although the Old Testament only required fasting on the Day of Atonement, Fasting was also, when used correctly, a way that people could demonstrate sorrow for their sin and the condition of God's people. A people who needed deliverance. But the favor and the deliverance of God that was sought in fasting had come in Jesus. The presence of Jesus meant that sins could be forgiven. That sinners were being called into the kingdom and that God's people could be delivered. The presence of Jesus means sorrow, therefore, must give way to celebration. And it's a particular sort of celebration. It's the celebration of a wedding feast. Because Christ has come to make us one with Himself. By calling Himself the bridegroom in verse 19, Jesus 
is saying he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that God would come for his bride and be the husband of his people. This is the message of Hosea, is it not? Which we covered not too long ago when we went through the minor prophets. Though we were unfaithful to God, he would make a way to be faithful to his people as husband. He would come and buy us back from the slave market of sin where we offered ourselves like a harlot to other gods and we would be united with Him as His bride forever. This is what He says in Hosea 2.19. I will betroth you to Me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to Me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Now what's fascinating is this is Yahweh talking in Hosea, and Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, I'm the bridegroom. What is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? Yahweh in the flesh is here. God in the flesh has come. The one who said he would come and be married to his people is standing in your presence. Jesus has come to give us the righteousness that the law trains us to seek. The righteousness that can only come through a relationship with God by faith in His Son. A righteousness that comes by sharing in all that is God's through a supernatural union with Christ. It's time to get married. And that means it's time to celebrate. At a Jewish wedding, Edwards tells us that the friends and guests of the bridegroom had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. Lay aside all the do's and the don'ts and the regulations for a minute and just enjoy being with Jesus and let those things then flow from your relationship with Him. Fasting while Jesus is palpably present among His people makes no more sense than declaring a fast in the middle of a wedding. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm here. It's party time. It's time to celebrate. And I wonder sometimes about the church which comes in at 11 o'clock dull and leaves at 12 o'clock dead. Like, what happened to us? What happened to the joy of knowing the presence of Christ in our midst? When Stacy and I were married, we did what everyone else does. We hired a photographer. The mistake we made is we didn't ask around and we didn't hire a good photographer. I'm telling you, this photographer was like the Pharisees. I mean, he stopped us every two steps. From the time we walked into the reception area to the time we left, I thought, this guy doesn't understand what a candid photograph is if it smacked him in the head. I mean, it it drove me. Hey, would y'all stop for just a second? So this is us in the food line. Okay? I finally got to the food. And I was hungry. And I'm halfway down the food line. And Stacy, she did a great job of making a beautiful smile. But can you see my face? I don't know, even know why we bought this picture. It's a terrible picture. It's a reminder of what happens when you go to a wedding and somebody says it's time to fast. That's what he was saying. You put your food down and let's get a few more photographs. I didn't pay you to do that. I paid you to get photographs as I'm enjoying the celebration. And I gave him the, if you do that one more time, the only reason you're not going to die is because I know Jesus' face. 
That's what some of you are doing. You're so busy trying to document the fact that you know God. You're trying to prove to yourself that you know God. You're trying to take a picture every time you do something special for God that you've forgotten the joy of just knowing Jesus and being united to Him. Jesus has come to give you Himself as your husband. And when we trust in Him, He freely shares all that He has with us, His bride. And that is reason to celebrate. We should be characterized by joy. But secondly, we must maintain an appetite for Jesus. While Jesus' disciples cannot fast as long as He is present, Jesus tells us days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then He gives us this promise, then they will fast. In other words, we will fast when Jesus ascends to heaven and His kingdom expands through through His Spirit-empowered church. In other words, when is the time for fasting? The time for fasting is now. What is fasting? Fasting means to stop eating and or drinking for a period of time to cultivate a deeper hunger for, awareness of, and reliance upon the presence of God in our lives. He is present, but He has gone And He's coming again. And the way we cultivate an awareness of His presence is in the fasting. When we think about our relationship with Christ and knowing His presence, we often think about the stuff we can do. Bible study, small group, prayer, sermons, books. But one of the best ways for all of those spiritual disciplines to have their intended effect is for us to do without natural food for a season so that we might cultivate a greater appetite for the spiritual nourishment that Christ has for His church. You say, well, I've got diabetes, I can't fast. I've got this reason, I can't fast. Well, can you throw away your cell phone for a day? Can you? Some of you need to fast in the opposite direction. Some of you are such health nuts, wound up counting how many carbs you ate every day, you just need to take two days and eat a piece of cake. You need to to fast from from the religion that you've made out of food. And you got to stop worshiping your body image and you're counting your carbs and all the stuff you're doing. You just need to enjoy Jesus for a day and have a big old honking piece of cake and a bowl of ice cream and call it a fast. But others of you, it's been a year, two years, ten years, a decade. Some of you have never fasted. And I submit to you that there's something supernatural that God grants to you when you pair prayer and fasting. When you pair Bible reading and fasting. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who know that Christ is the bread of life and that He satisfies more than the best ribeye steak. In Acts 13.2, while the church is at Antioch, ministering to the Lord and fasting, guess what happens? The first missionary journey ensues. Later in chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas are ministering in cities, they set set apart elders, plural, in every church, having prayed and fasted. Is your worship stale? Is your Bible dull? Is your marriage stuck? Are your kids straying from the faith? Are you struggling with the same old sin? Do you long for a loved one to be saved for a move of God in our valley? Are you hungry for the presence of the now reigning Christ to be made known in your life and the lives of others who desperately need Him? Then why don't you consider 
a fast. Take one day a week for the rest of 2017 and cry out to God that God would move through our family of faith into the Roanoke Valley and around the world unlike He's ever done it. Pick a day and say, I'm going to skip breakfast and I'm going to skip lunch and I'm going to take those times that I would have eaten and I'm going to read God's Word and I'm going to cry out to God. And every time that I'm reminded how hungry I am, I'm not just going to sit there and say, oh, I wish I could have a cracker. I'm instead going to pray and cry out to God and say, as I hunger in my stomach, I hunger and thirst more for a move of the Spirit of God in my valley unlike I've ever seen. And watch what God does to fill His church with His presence. Fasting is a way we can come to know more fully the reality of our union with Christ in the here and now. Because Christ has come and He's coming again, fasting is a form of feasting. John Piper writes this, We have tasted the powers of the age to come. And our new fasting is not... In other words, he calls it a... Notice he calls it a new fasting. Right? It's, it's not a fasting because of what we don't have. It's a fasting because of, get this, because we're hungry for something, not something that we've not tasted, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we've never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, hello, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. We must have all that He has promised and we must have as much now as possible. When I know that I'm going to Mac and Bob's, I skip breakfast and lunch because I've tasted their calzones. When I know that I'm going for a big steak dinner, I skip breakfast and lunch because I know what a medium rare bone-in ribeye tastes like. I have tasted it before. And sometimes when we get so crowded with the stuff of life, we need to take a pause and we need to step back and we need to create some margin and some space and some hunger in our life so that we can again taste of the joy and the presence of Christ. Are you hungry for the presence of Christ in your life, in your family, in our church, in the lives of billions who do not yet even know His name? Then fast and be filled. Thirdly, we must be clothed with Christ's righteousness and filled with His presence. A number of commentators miss what Jesus is doing here. But he gives us the illustration of garments and new wine right after describing for us a wedding celebration. Why? Because what you wear to a wedding and what you drink at a wedding are important considerations. All right? It's, it, it's not like Jesus is just talking about anything old and anything new. He's talking about, he's continuing the analogy of our union with Christ in marriage. So he gives us the examples of an old garment in verse 21 and old wineskins in verse 22. In Hosea, when God promises to be married to his people, guess what he promises immediately after the verse I read just a few moments ago? He promises that there's going to be new wine as a result of the union. In Revelation 19, when we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb, Guess what God tells us? He says that the church will be there. That, now, by the way, it's not just the American church. Did you know there's going to be more than Americans in heaven? 
There's going to be red and yellow, black and white. Every nation is precious in His sight. And He's going to call us together. And guess what? We're all going to be wearing fine linen, bright and clean. We're going to have new garments. So there's going to be new wine at the wedding. There's going to be new garments at the wedding. And in John 2, Jesus' very first miracle, what does He do? He goes to a wedding and they run out of the old wine. And everybody's sad and melancholy that the old wine is gone and Jesus creates on the spot new wine. By definition, it's new wine because it was freshly created wine. And everybody goes, where did you get that really good old stuff? And it's not old stuff. It's the new stuff. It's the wine of his presence poured out for his church. We need a new and a better wine that never runs out and is available whenever we need it. Jesus comes and he says, the law is given way to my presence You couldn't sustain the party on the Old Covenant. You couldn't sustain the party on the law. You couldn't keep the law, but I've come and I've kept the law for you. And it's Jesus Christ in the flesh who keeps the party going. Edwards adds this. Did y'all, the preacher just said, Jesus keeps the party going. Can you believe that? It's true. That's the message of John 2. Jesus keeps the party going. Edwards adds this. In these parables, Jesus is the new patch and the new wine. He's not an attachment, an addition, or an appendage to the status quo. The question posed is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, it's make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question, get this, the question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. I love that. Being married to Christ requires new garments of His righteousness and the new wine of His everlasting presence, which will come through the new covenant in His blood. Our union with Christ is not about what we bring to the table. It's not about your fasting. It's not about your giving. It's not about your rituals. It's not about your holiness or your righteousness. It's about what Jesus brings to the table. You can't marry Jesus, by the way, with a prenuptial agreement. I mean, what did you bring anyway? You didn't bring anything. that Hey, Jesus, I got this old wedding gown with a big hole in it. How about I get married in that? No, I'll get you a new gown. Well, I got this old bottle of wine. Would that do? Nah, you want you just throw that away too. In Christ, God has come to unite, us, unite Himself with us if, as Psalm 2.12 told us, we will kiss His Son. And kissing the Son means leaving behind our old garments and the old wine of waiting around for something worth drinking. The one we want to drink of has come. His mercies are new every morning. This means we abandon our futile efforts of trying to please God by what we can do and we embrace Christ as our only hope. It means we can't add Jesus to our life. He must become our life. We can't be reformed like patching a a patch into an old pair of jeans. We must be made new. And we must receive the Spirit-given capacity to drink daily of the new wine of the presence of Christ. The law was never intended to be the garment that we wear. It was intended to show us the holes in our garments. 
This is what Paul says in Romans. You could have never kept the law. Even if you kept the law, it wouldn't have been righteousness enough for God. It was intended to show you that you were lacking someone. You were lacking Jesus. It's impossible to patch Jesus into your old religious system. He will tear the system apart. It's not do more, do better, but know the joy of dying daily in order that you could be united with the King of glory. And if you try to put the surpassing joy of the new wine of Jesus' presence into the old dry-rotted skins of trying to earn God's favor, then the whole thing blows up. It's Jesus or bust. You see, we've gone, when Jesus comes, we've gone from looking for the Savior to living in the Savior. When Jesus shows up, we've gone from religious ritual to a relationship with a holy God. When Jesus shows up, we've gone from knowing our failure and having nothing to do about it, from admitting we're a failure, but receiving the forgiveness of God. Jesus hasn't just come, he's saying to the Pharisees, as a political savior conquering his enemies. He's come as a personal savior conquering our sin. He's not come to give us a physical temple, but to make us his church, the temple of his presence, as we take his message of his kingdom to all peoples and all places on the earth. And if that's going to happen, what do we need? We don't need the old wine, we need the new wine of his presence with us. We need it every day. We need it in every culture, we need it in every context, and we need it in every single age. The churches that God uses are those who keep consuming the new wine of His presence as they pursue Christ's mission in the world. You see, this doesn't just have an individual application for us. It has a corporate application for us this morning, North Roanoke, because we get good at creating our old garments and our old wineskins. We get good at creating our old traditions. You don't believe me? Just, just walk into an average Southern Baptist church and say, what if we tried something other than vacation Bible school this year? <gasps> Are you kidding me? Now, I'm not, that's not what I'm suggesting, but I'm making the point. We create our old wineskins. We create our old ruts and our old traditions. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, We can forget that His mercies are new every morning. And that He's given us minds and hearts and He's filled us with His presence and He's leading us ambitiously for His glory to seek the new that He is doing in the world. John Piper writes it this way. The truth is in Jesus. And He never changes. But He often brings change. The key question before us now is whether our time in history, our cultural setting, our special stresses and challenges are such that God wants us to make some changes. Not for the sake of change, but for new paths of God's power among the people. He continues, what do you want from your church? Would you be satisfied if it fit you like a glove? but saved few sinners? Would you be satisfied if it met all your needs and left hundreds of members unaccounted for? Would you be satisfied if you felt comfortable with its programs while the community impact was small? Would you be content if you were coming alive to God and hundreds were coasting? 
North Roanoke Baptist Church, we need to daily appropriate the new garments and the new wine. May we be reminded in our day of the nearness of Christ and the freshness of His presence as we feast on Him even through fasting and then pursue His mission with joy, always open to His leadership, knowing that He is leading us forward so that the world may know everything changes with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, We confess to you this morning that there are times that we find ourselves in a rut. There are times that we find ourselves like the Pharisees clinging to the old forms of religion. But you are on mission stretching us and leading us to new days as we drink of your new wine. And carry the message of the wedding celebration that goes to all nations until you come again. So God, we pray that you would help us to feast on Jesus. That you would lift our countenance. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And help us to live our lives this day in light of that day when we feast with Christ in the new heavens, in the new earth. And we all sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and power and honor and blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.